Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Garrison Nelson about his biography of John William McCormack, the Massachusetts congressman who served as Speaker of the House of Representatives in the 1960s. Garrison, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you, Mark. Good to talk to you, too, Garrison. I wonder if you could start us... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Garrison Nelson about his biography of John William McCormack, the Massachusetts congressman who served as Speaker of the House of Representatives in the 1960s. Garrison, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you, Mark. Good to talk to you too, Garrison. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm a professor at the University of Vermont. This is my 49th year. I was hired in the midst of the baby boom back in 1968 and have been uh, been primarily located here, although you have taught at a half a dozen uh, Boston area uh, universities, Boston College, Boston University, uh, you know, Tufts, Brandeis, but uh, been anchored pretty much here at the University of Vermont. This is, uh, I'm, and I'm basically a scholar of the U.S. Congress, and my prior to this book, my most notable accomplishment uh, was to compile uh, seven volumes of congressional committee assignments dating back to 1789 up to 2010, uh, well over 150,000 committee assignments with 30 variables, a huge undertaking, (laughs) one I'm not sure I would have ever done again. How is it that you came to write this book? Well, uh, I met John McCormick in 1968. Uh, I had just been hired at the University of Vermont. I was 26 years old. Uh, I was writing a doctoral dissertation at the University of Iowa on leaders of the House of Representatives. So it was Labor Day weekend, and the American Political Science Association was meeting in Washington. So I went over to the Capitol in hopes of kind of uh, talking to somebody about congressional leaders. And I went to the Speaker's office, and I asked somebody I could talk to about Speaker McCormick. And his chief assistant said, would you like to talk to Speaker McCormick himself? <laughs> Of course. So uh, I was escorted into the Speaker's office, and uh, and the big question I had for Speaker McCormick was that he had been named to the Ways and Means Committee, which is the most important committee in the House of Representatives, because it's the committee that originates all revenue legislation. Also at that time, the Democratic members of Ways and Means made all the committee assignments for every other Democrat in the House of Representatives. So this is quite an honor that he was able to get to there in his third year. So I asked him how he did it. So he told me the story of meeting with John Garner, John Nance Garner, who was then Speaker of the House, and who would later become Franklin Roosevelt's first vice president. And Garner was from Texas, and John went to see him about being put on the Judiciary Committee. He was, John was on two minor committees, territories and elections number three, and he wanted to get off them onto judiciary. So he went to Ghana, and Ghana said, where you been? We wanted to uh, put, we wanted to uh, name you uh, chair of the caucus. Now, this is quite an honor. And 
the cornbread was flabbergasted. He said, I didn't even think he knew my name. Then he said, John, how would you like to be on Ways and Means? Which is, of course, how would you like to have the keys to the kingdom? And McCormick, once again, taking it back, he said, said, uh, he said we'll, we'll get the Texans to vote for you, and you have Billy Connery blow his nose at you. Now, Billy Connery was the senior Democrat from Massachusetts, what we used to call the dean of the delegation. Well, Billy Connery came from my hometown of Lynn, Massachusetts, north of Boston. I said, Billy Connery? I said, I know who he was. We have a school name for him, and the American Legion Post is named for him. At this point, I'm now a blood brother of John McCormick. <laughs> he reaches into his drawer and pulls out a cigar and hands me a cigar. So there I am. I'm 26 years old and with a 76-year-old speaker sitting in this beautiful office with a wonderful, you know, ornate chandelier puffing cigars. So this was quite a remarkable experience. Well, I wrote my dissertation on congressional leaders. Uh, I did not follow up on McCormick. I did a, a, a paper for the Kennedy School on uh, uh, what we call the Austin-Boston connection, the link between Texas and Massachusetts that had dominated the speakership for 50 years and uh, from 1937 up to 1989. Uh, and uh, so I, I called McCormick again, and I spoke with McCormick on the phone, and he told me the same stories that he told me earlier, and with, you know, almost, almost word for word. And so now I had this kind of concept, this, the Austin-Boston uh, speakership. And uh, when I would, after I finished two of my seven volumes on the committees, I met with... Um, uh, uh, friends of mine from Texas, and I asked them, I said, let's do a book on the Austin-Boston connection. And so three of us, and eventually there will be four of us, uh, put together a book detailing this rather unique link between these two uh, parts of the country uh, and tried to find out what the link was. The link was very simple. Neither region, neither part of the, uh, was dominated by a substantial number of African-Americans. And given the fact that race uh, politics had been the, uh, we mentioned so the anchor of the Democratic Party, Democratic Party was founded by Thomas Jefferson, you know, who was a slaveholder, was renewed by Andrew Jackson, another slaveholder. So the Democratic Party had basically defended slavery before the Civil War and segregation after the Civil War. So consequently, after when Franklin Roosevelt starts to move the Democratic Party away from its sort of white racist past, uh, having people who could sort of be balancers within the uh, within race politics was important. And that meant Texas and Massachusetts. Uh, Texas is the largest southern state with the smallest black population. Boston is the largest northern city with the smallest black population. So consequently, uh, Sam Rayburn coming out of Texas did not have to be as a, 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 a raging racist because there were a few blacks in his district. And John Wick did not have to become a champion for civil rights because there were relatively few blacks in his district. So consequently, McCormick and Rayburn could be the bridge between the two wings of the Democratic Party, the South and the cities. And that was the Austin-Boston connection. And uh, that was the first book that came out of this project. And that came out in 2009. Uh, published by uh, Texas A&M. So y you talk a lot about that connection, and it's one of the things that really uh, enriches your book, your explanation as to how it worked throughout McCormick's career, not just in the 1930s, but also up through the 1960s. But you also spend 
a good amount of space detailing the context of politics in Boston, which requires almost a completely different set of expertise to uh, talk about the personalities and and the uh, context, the the uh, the uh, familial context, the uh, the, 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 the ethnic context, and, and, and as you explain, uh, McCormack was, was, had to engage in a bit of obfuscation in order to, uh, in order to, uh, situate himself in that. Boston, uh, of the four major, uh, East coast cities, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore, um, each had a different, uh, sort of ethnic history. Uh, New York was the most diverse, you know, uh, really uh, as early as the 1600s, the 25 to 30 different languages have been spoken in New York. So New York was always a diverse city. Uh, Philadelphia was always a tolerant city, you know, the city of brotherly love. And Baltimore had a substantial number of Catholics as a consequence of being settled by the Calvert family. Boston was different. Boston was much more monochromatic. Boston was settled by Puritans, not by the pilgrims, but by the Puritans. And Puritans came, you know, came across the ocean to, to sort of purify the uh, Anglican Church, which they felt had been has been uh, uh, compromised by sort of Catholic rituals being introduced by uh, King uh, James I, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic. So uh, they came across the ocean to create a a new England, a new England, a key. And with them, they brought this, this faith, this Puritan faith, which was much more rigid, much more dogmatic and uh, very, uh, and as we know, uh, <laughs> much more fatal as in the case of a number of women who were uh, uh, hanged during the Salem witch trials later in the uh, as 1600s. So it was a, so they were a, uh, there were people, very proud people and arrogant people. They founded Harvard College in 1636, you know, uh, sort of uh, so seven years after they landed in Boston. And a very, uh, a very proud people. And this is going to be a city on a hill. And the city on a hill is from the book of Matthew. A city on a hill is a city that the world will look at. It cannot be hid from the world. So consequently, what you do will be seen throughout the world. So they had a, they were an arrogant people and they were clearly, you know, quite self-obsessed and very self-important. And they were not very welcoming to uh, later uh, English arrivals and, uh, and who ended up basically either going to New York or to Philadelphia or Boston, or Baltimore rather. So the Boston, so Boston became, was a really an isolated community and very, very Protestant, very white and very intolerant. And of course, the Salem witch trials are the most direct manifestation of that intolerance. So uh, now, so when the Irish came, the, the, the worst famine back in the late 1840s, they were coming into a city that was, was almost wholly Protestant, wholly white, and wholly unwelcoming uh, to the Catholic Irish who arrived. But the Catholic Irish arrived in droves because the fare was relatively cheap, uh, from England uh, to Boston, and they, uh, and they, you know, the population of Boston exploded with all of these Irish. Now, within the Protestant community, there were sort of two sets of Protestants. There were the, the upper class, well-educated, uh, very literate. You think of all the great writers that came out of this, Boston Thoreau and Emerson, Longfellow and uh, Hawthorne, 
And uh, they were, to say, they were the, 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 the Boston Brahmins, the Boston Brahmins, and they were sort of a, a, a sort of educated, highly cultured elite, and very uh, <laughs> fearful of the arrival of these kind of bedraggled uh, Irish Catholics. But also in Boston, there was a substantial number of poor Protestants who lived on the marshes outside the city, and they were known as the Swamp Yankees, and they did all the factory work and all the menial jobs. And they were, as they say, uh, so we had the, the two sets of Protestants, the well-educated Brahmins and the kind of uh, uh, unfortunate uh, swamp Yankees. So uh, now these Catholics arrive. And the Catholics are now going to confront, you know, hostility. They confront hostility from the Brahmins and they confront enormous hostility from the swamp Yankees, whose jobs they're going to take and whose jobs they're threatening. And this leads to the... Uh, emergence of so the Know-Nothing Party in the 1850s, which will uh, nominate a Speaker of the House from Massachusetts by the name of Nathaniel Banks. So the Know-Nothings are very successful, sad to say, uh, in Massachusetts. So we do have these, these Protestant Catholic tensions, but there's also class tensions as well. Eventually, we'll see uh, tensions within the, the Irish community as the more successful Irish will start to sort of distance themselves from their poor cousins and this is where you get the distinction between what we call the lace curtain Irish, the wealthy, comfortable, you know, better educated Irish, and the uh, the, the poor cousins, you know, the sort of the uh, sort of the shanty Irish. Now, shanty, the term shanty uh, from Gaelic means old house, and these are the, to the poor Irish were living in old houses, houses that have been abandoned by, you know, by uh, by the Protestants uh, <laughs> along the waterfront. Uh, as they, uh, you know, moved up in social status. So within both communities, you have a class dimension uh, that, uh, you know, that 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 belies the general interpretation, which is, is, is the sort of the, the rich Protestants versus the poor Catholics. No, it's much more uh, complex than that. And when McCormack is uh, born in, in, in 1892, he's born at a point at which the Irish have begun to take political offices and establish themselves. And it includes some people who are become very important historically and who begin lineages, which become even more important to American history. Right. The, uh, the first, uh, it's in the 1880s that the first uh, Irish descended mayor, uh, actually native of Ireland, is elected uh, mayor of Boston. And the first thing, now you have to remember, Boston is also the state capital as well as the largest city in the state. So the state legislature uh, intervenes often and not uh, wholly uh, uh, benignly uh, in the uh, act in the life of, of Boston. So the, the state legislature took the power of naming the, the city of uh, city police chief away from the mayor once an Irishman had become mayor of the city. And that was and that would later have reverberations in the, the Boston police strike of 1919. But uh, so the, the state legislature was very much on top of, of Boston's politics and very fearful, once again, of the Irish influence in the city and did try to minimize their political impact. Well, John is uh, born, you know, it's a, December 1891, and uh, the city is now going through this transformation where the Irish are getting more and more power. And, of course, a uh, key figure here is, of course, John Fitzgerald. Honey Fitz was, of course, uh, Jan Jack Kennedy's 
a maternal grandfather who will be elected to the House of Representatives and will be the only Catholic in the House of Representatives uh, from the Northeast at that time. So now, so now, but the city is the city's politics are very baronial. There's no real one. There's no Tammany Hall in control of, of the city uh, like the Democrats of New York. So the multiple baronies, and four in particular, and two of them are Jack Kennedy's grandfathers. Uh, Honey Fitz, who comes out of the, the, the North End, which is now an Italian neighborhood. Uh, uh, P.J. Kennedy, who came out of East Boston, which is now a sort of Italian, now becoming Hispanic neighborhood. Uh, and, of course, they're, they're, you know, P.J.'s son will marry Fitzgerald's daughter. Then you have uh, Martin Lomazny, who ran a, the West End of Boston, which is a very polyglot community of Jews and Jews and, and blacks and and Italians and Irish and, you know, a, a rather uh, unique uh, uh, multicultural uh, collection. And then, of course, you have the most famous of all, which is James Michael Curley, who is younger than the other three, but who will be elected mayor of Boston four times, be elected governor once. Uh, and will become a major national political figure. And uh, so now now we have the, these are sort of the players. Each of these people had a particular history. Now, in order to see, there are two ways to succeed in Boston. One was sort of the Yankee Protestant route. We usually had to have a, be Protestant, be a Congregationalist, and go to Harvard College. You know, that was route one. The other route was the Irish route. In the Irish route, you needed to have an Irish father, a widowed mother, and younger siblings. You had to have a kind of you had to have a hard luck story in order to engage the attention of these gatekeepers. So now here's where John McCormick has a problem. His father is not an Irish immigrant. As a matter of fact, his father is a Canadian immigrant. And even more so, more of a problem, John's father is not Irish. John's father is a Scot from Prince Edward Island. So John has a Scottish-Canadian father. So he fails test one. Uh, he does not have a widowed mother. John says his father died when John was 13. No, John's father died when John was 37. But when John was 13, the old man left the house. Left the house because two of the children, James and Catherine, were both dying of tuberculosis. And so Daddy McCormick, Daddy Joe McCormick, uh, hopped on the train, went north, went north to Maine, actually, uh, to get out of the household and to sort of escape uh, a, a marriage that he could not divorce because he was a Catholic. Now, so John's mother, uh, Mary Ellen, who is born in Boston, but both her parents are Irish, she will give, she will be pregnant 12 times. She will give birth to eight children. Two will die in uh, young and three others will die as uh, uh, as older children. One, James at 17, Catherine at 19, and Patrick at 24. So John does not have deceased young. He's got two deceased younger siblings, but he's got three deceased older siblings. Now the three of them are buried in the city, but none is buried. None is buried uh, with a tombstone. They are buried in unmarked graves. And John basically was sort of concealing this fact from the city. Because he wanted to have the profile of the, the sort of the Irish father, the widowed mother, and younger siblings, which was the model for the four gatekeepers, like Kennedy, uh, Fitzgerald, Lamazzi, and Curley. And it worked. And he had this in place by the time he was 21 years old, when he passed the bar exam. Now, John passed the bar exam without going to law school, 
without going to college, without graduating high school. He, his highest edu- level of education was the eighth grade. Mm-hmm. How does he make it? He wor- he's discovered by a lawyer in the city who makes him a messenger boy and who basically mentors John. He's an old, an old Yankee uh, and uh, who lets John you know, read in his office and who's got political ambitions of his own. Actually, he runs for office four times and loses four times. Well, why? He's a, he's a Unitarian in the Catholic <laughs> Party. That's not going to help you very much. And he lives in so and he lives in Plymouth, which is a uh, a Republican town. So he's a Unitarian in the Catholic Party and, and, a, and a Democrat living in a Republican town. He's not going to get elected. He goes over four. But you, John learns. So John learns. Sorry. I was going to say, you met, one of the things that I thought was interesting, you make the connection that that relationship is very much in the Horatio Algerian tradition and how McCormack himself uh, was very enamored of those books and, and he read them uh, at that age and, and in a sense lived that experience himself and that was part of the key to his uh, establishment in law, which of course uh, then as now was one of the basic paths to politics. Absolutely. And he basically that and, and this lawyer, his name was William Way and William Way, you know, mentored John. And but most importantly, he got John a connection with a man by the name of Charles Ennis, who was a Republican boss in Boston. And Charlie Ennis, according to one biographer, said Charlie Ennis had an uncanny knack for anticipating bar exam questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know what the knack was. Charlie Ennis was buying questions and selling answers. And Charlie Ennis got close to 900 people through the bar exams, including John McCormick. And uh, however, after John got through the bar, the state legislature said that you had to have at least two years in high school in order to test for the bar exam. So John would not have qualified. This is the last one in under that under that initial rule. So uh, so John so John McCormick is eighth grade education. Every single room John McCormick went into as. Uh, Everybody in the room was better educated than he was, including all the secretaries who probably had high school degrees, high school diplomas. You, you so, mentioned, there's somebody else we should mention, though, who is important to uh, John McCormick's life and career, and that's his brother, Nako, one of the uh, two surviving brothers who, who survived into adulthood. I was ready to could speak a bit about him, and I was fascinated by how Nako sort of pursues an alternate path. Uh, he, he's, he has slightly different interests, and how ultimately that path proves to be very complementary to John's career. Narco was uh, Edward J. McCormick. Uh, he was a, a legendary character. Uh, Narco was not much of a student, so Narco did not bother, you know, with high school. Narco was big, was very strong, and eventually, you know, worked as a, you know, a stevedore, you know, Doc Wallop up, uh, and uh, eventually would get would uh, weigh close to 300 pounds <laughs> and was a prize fighter and you know not particularly good one i was getting uh, in my the book i have an incident with knocko gets 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 knocked out fairly early in, in in one competition for the golden gloves but nevertheless knocko that's why he gets his name uh because of his uh, prize fighting uh career and but but he becomes a sort of he becomes affiliated with jim curley and he's Jim Curley's leg breaker. You know, if you need a, if you need a tire slash, you need a window broken, you need you need a sort of a dirty deed done. Narco would take care of it for you. That was Narco's uh, job. And Narco eventually was a bootlegger uh, during during Prohibition. 
uh, later became a barkeep, had a restaurant uh, in South Boston. Narco was a true legend in Southie. And when I lived in South Boston, and my multiple visits to South Boston, people I spoke to all had narco stories. Very few had John McCormick stories. John sort of stayed away from Southie for a very simple reason. Because you could ask John three questions and he would be exposed in a heartbeat. You could ask John, uh, what, you know, where are your people from? Now, that has to be answered in the Irish and the county. So let's say, uh, you, know, you know, County Mayo, okay, which is where my people are from. Uh, oh, whoa, what, uh, what town in Mayo? Say, well, say Westport. Oh, okay, John, uh, what, uh, what parish? And then that's when you run the run. Let's say you say St. Mary's. Someone says, well, oh, no, Tommy, Tommy, you bring someone over. You're from, you're from Mayo. Is there a uh, St. Mary's parish in Westport? And he would say, no. I said, John, maybe you're mistaken. Maybe it's not in St. Mary's Parish. Maybe it's not Westport. Maybe it's not Mayo. Maybe it's not Ireland. John would have been exposed in a heartbeat. So consequently, he stayed away from Southie, showed up infrequently. He uh, lived, never owned a home. I lived in a second floor walk up on, on uh, Columbia Road in Dorchester. And uh, and he sort of, he let Narco be the kind of the, Kind of the professional Irishman uh, that South Boston uh, esteems and uh, and adores. And, and Naco had a career in the uh, state legislature, didn't he? No, no, he did not. Uh, okay. the, uh, the the legislature there was a legislative career in the, not in John's family, uh, but in the in the, uh, the Kennedy family. Uh, and his father served in the state senate. Grandfather served in the state senate, and of course, uh, you know Fitzgerald. But uh, and Martin Lamasley, so they. But uh, no, they had they had no. Uh, no, Eddie Eddie McCormick, the uh, Narco's son, uh, did have a career in the city council, and of course was elected attorney general of Massachusetts twice, and yeah. of course an ill-fated run against Ted Kennedy in 1962. But, but John, John McCormick all, uh, himself did serve in the state legislature in both. John served in the legislature. He was a very. Uh, he served in the state house uh, and in the state senate. In the state senate, there were there were like John was one of six members of the Democrats, and the, they could meet in a phone booth. And John became full leader for the half dozen uh, Democrats in the state senate. So that was his first uh, formal uh, position as a uh, legislative leader. How does it that he's able to uh, make it into Congress? Well, he lucked out uh, in many ways. A uh, <laughs> the story goes, this is part of the legend, uh, he went into the Boston Athletic Club uh, one day with his dear friend Jim Fitzgerald, no relation to Honey Fitz, and they discovered the uh, the incumbent congressman, a man named James Gallivan, whose nickname was uh, Chalkface, <laughs> for whatever <laughs> reason we can assume. And so Chalkface was, was, had crashed on the floor of the men's room and was totally unconscious. And apparently Jim Fitzgerald went over to feel his pulse. And, and, the, and the legend goes, he turned to John and says, this is a dead man, John. You should run for his seat. <laughs> John will deny this. John denied this up and down. But nevertheless, it, it, it is very plausible. So John, who's, a, who's basically got a, got a very safe seat in the state legislature, state Senate, chooses to run against Gallivan. And uh, they, they uh, and will uh, sort of dares Gallivan to, to debate him, and they will have uh, one 
one, one major debate, in which Galvin will em, uh, embarrass John, which basically uh, uh, Galvin turns to John. This is in the South Boston Municipal Building, and turns to John says, uh, "You know, young man, stand up." John stands up out of his chair and says, "Young man, sit down." John sits down. Galvin turns to the audience and says, "Ladies and gentlemen, do you want a puppet like that, <laughs> or do you want a real leader like me?" Well, it worked, and John loses the contest. But John campaigned against Galvin as a successor and not as a rival, and always spoke nicely about Galvin, and was very because knowing that that you know you know this is the Boston Irish, they have long memories. You know, we always call Irish Alzheimer's disease. We forget everything but a grudge. So John, <laughs> well well aware of this, was not going to attack Galvin personally. He just you know, he challenged him on his record, but not personally. And so when Galvin did die, and McCormick was correct, uh, John got seat, and so he won a special election and a full election at the same time. So he was basically, uh, so he had a, an edge up uh, into the Congress over other newly elected members. Well, he's elected because in 1928, this is of course the year that Al Smith gets clobbered uh, by Herbert Hoover. Uh, Catholics in all throughout America are just on the defensive. A Catholic champion has been defeated by this, you know, this Quaker Protestant. Uh, and uh, so, so John enters the House, and the House is, once again, is very heavily Republican. But what happens, of course, the stock market will crash the following year, the Depression begin, and the Democrats will squeak out a very narrow uh, control of the House. And, and in, in, it's in 1930, and so it's in 31, when the Democrats are now in control of the House, that John will, will have that meeting with Garner, who basically you know, uh, puts him on the Ways and Means Committee. His timing really was very uh, fortuitous in that respect. That he, because he wins the special election in '28, he gets a slight edge in terms of seniority. He right. comes in right before you're going to have this growing wave of Democratic congressmen. So he, you're going from a relatively small minority caucus to a much larger one, and he is at an age where he has plenty of time to work his way up to a position of leadership. And as a member of the Ways and Means Committee, he's putting people on committees. Mm -hmm. And he is now in a position to uh, assign people to different committees. And in the process, it gains, you know, a lot of goodwill and a lot of, you know, uh, obligations that, that John has earned uh, from these new members who John is able to place on committees. Now, at this point, there are close to 50 committees in the House of Representatives, so there's ample opportunity to place people and move people around the committee system. And John's uh, role on the Ways and Means Committee is as a talent scout. Now, there's, there's the two responsibilities of Ways and Means. One is the policy one, which is in you know, taxation and revenue legislation, John didn't own a house, so he, he wasn't worried about taxation. But the other is, of course, the political responsibility, which was uh, handling the committee assignments, which John loved. And he became the talent scout of the Democrats in the House of Representatives. And that way he was able to sort of, uh, once again, uh, in, you know, gain a great a goodwill from uh, the in, incoming members. Mm-hmm. Another thing that struck me in terms of the timing was – how in the 1930s you have this succession of speakers who are part of that 
legacy of the from the minority in the, in the in the 20s who by virtue of their age they serve you know three four years in the speakership and they die so there's a rapid cycling through the senior leadership of, of the of the uh, United States House among on the Democratic side and so he he has this virtually meteoric rise when you compare him to other speakers who were there you know 15 20 30 years before they become speaker and uh, yet uh, John McCormack becomes the House Majority Leader in 13. You know, what happens, four speakers will die within 10 years. Uh, Nick Longworth, the Republican speaker, will die. You know, Teddy Roosevelt's son-in-law. Uh, you'll have Henry Rainey from Illinois. He'll die. You'll have Joe Burns of Tennessee. He'll die. And then you'll have Will Bankett. He'll die in 1940. So four speakers will die within a 10-year period, which basically means that that the, the uh, leadership contests uh, will start to emerge on a regular basis. Now, the, the elevation, now the, the, the three key offices in terms of leadership are the speaker, the majority leader, and the whip. Now, the Democrats always appointed the whip. Republicans elected their whip. The Democrats appointed their whip. So the only, so the only two posts up for election would be the speaker and the uh, majority leader. Well, the Democratic tradition was to elevate the majority leader to the speakership once the speakership came open. And when you have three speakers dying, uh, three Democratic speakers dying in this period, the elevation automatically moves from majority leader to the speaker. So the real contest now becomes majority leader. And this is where McCormick is, makes his a major move. And uh, when uh, Speaker, uh, the, the key is when uh, Speaker uh, Burns died, there's a major contest for the leader between Sam Rayburn of Texas, you know, the key Southern and, and protege of John Nance Garner and John O'Connor, a Catholic from New York, a Tammany Hall guy who was born in Massachusetts, went to Brown, went to Harvard Law and a very arrogant man. Well, he's a Catholic and he's expecting the Catholics to rally around him. Well, John McCormick has learned that O'Connor is sleeping with his mistress, living openly with his mistress. Now, John McCormick is married to Harriet, eight years older than John, 1921. John will have dinner every night for 51 years with Harriet. So John is far and away the, arguably the most loyal husband in the House of Representatives and takes personal affront over the sort of, inf the, the sort of public infidelities of uh, John O'Connor. And so John will rally the Catholics in New England against O'Connor. And that will uh, benefit Sam Rayburn, and Sam Rayburn will get elected majority leader. And, uh, and he'll become majority leader in 1937. And then two years later, when the uh, a job of chair of the caucus opens up, John will be uh, elected chair of the caucus, you know, by acclamation, no contest. And then in 1940, when Will Bankhead dies, Sam Rayburn, who's now the majority leader, becomes a speaker, and the contest for from, from majority leader is wide open. And here you have a contest between two different factions. One is the conservative Democratic faction, led by uh, Woodrum of, uh, President Woodrum of Virginia, and then is the moderate and liberal faction, led by John McCormick. And this is, of course, here's where Franklin Roosevelt and, uh, and his allies, you know, Harold Lickies, who's Secretary of the Interior, Harry Hawkins, 
was Secretary of Commerce, and Harry Hopkins' you know, chief assistant, David Niles, even more mysterious than John McCormick, uh, and his de- dear friend from Boston, will inter- intervene in the race and tilt the election to John McCormick in order to protect Roosevelt's New Deal. Because at this point, by 1940, the New Deal is under siege from the conservative coalition, a group of you know Southern conservative Democrats and Republicans were trying to sort of prevent, basically stop the New Deal from expanding after the 1938 election. But Roosevelt's now afraid that they'll roll back some of the gains of the New Deal. So that's so the Austin-Boston connection, Sam Rayburn and John McCormick's primary job at this point is to protect the New Deal's uh, advances and not to be rolled back uh, by the conservative coalition. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to McCormack's uh, personal relationship with Sam Rayburn, because the two of them will be a leadership team for the next 21 years. And as you write in the book, uh, McCormack spends a lot of his speakership thinking about Rayburn and and, and, and really missing uh, Rayburn's role. What, what was it that, you know, how, how did they work together and, and what did each of them bring to uh, the, their, their, their leadership, their collective leadership of the House? Well, they were quite dissimilar. Sam Rayburn was short, stubby, <laughs> bald, uh, and, uh, and shy. And, uh, you know, did not learn the name. Uh, some of the old timers on the Hill told me the only names that Sam Rayburn knew were the Texans and the committee chairs. Everyone else was kind of, <laughs> you know, hey, you, sort of like, had no real interest in them. Uh, and so John, on the other hand, was tall, thin. They kind of looked like the mutton Jeff. And uh, John was, uh, but John, John knew all the names. Now, remember, John didn't drink. His, his father and his oldest brother, uh, you, know, you know, succumbed to alcoholism. John did, was a total teetotaler. So John, was, John always had his wits about him, and he remembered the names, and he remembered everyone's names. He got them in the committee assignments. They kind of owed him. But John was quite different from Sam. He was not, Sam was referred to as the untalkative speaker. John was very voluble and he could drown you in, you know, you know, you know, half an hour of, of total verbiage uh, and, and he would never get to the point. And Tip O'Neill, his initial experience with John was, he said, what a windbag. <laughs> never quite, never quite got to the point. Well, John figured there's a, there's a very successful attorney in Boston. He would just talk a subject to death and people sort of forget the question that they started with. So that was his style. But John, but we have a wonderful classification called the interaction process analysis, which is developed by Robert Bales, a social psychologist at Harvard, which was that there, within every group is a, is a social leader and a task leader. The task leader focuses the group on accomplishing you know, the goal, making sure that things get done. The social leader's job is to keep the group together uh, and to sort of minimize the strains within the group as they achieve the task. Rayburn was a quintessential task leader. John was the quintessential social leader. That's why they're able to work together so successfully. And McCormack never had any ambitions of his own to replace Rayburn as the speaker. No, he did not want to be speaker. Uh, and he was. Uh, and when I interviewed him about being speaker, he just he told me how much he, he missed being on the floor as majority leader. He loved being on the floor, debating, talking with people. You know, working the floor, getting the votes together, you know, to pass legislation. Whereas Speaker, there you are, you're sitting in the Speaker's chair, you're far removed from the floor, 
and uh, you know, very little chance to interact with the members. So John really did not enjoy the speakership and did, did not really want it. And of course, would have much preferred that, that Rayburn, you know, continue to survive and, and hold the chair and, and he serve as majority leader. One of the other major relationships that you describe in the book is that between McCormack, who eventually becomes the dean of his House delegation, and John F. Kennedy, who enters Congress in, in, in enters the House in 1946 and serves uh, in, in the in the House until uh, he's elected to the United States Senate in 1952, and this is of course a relationship that has enormous consequences in the 1960s when Kennedy is president and McCormack is the speaker. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about both their relationship and the context of the, the, the families, because this is where the Boston politics, uh, you know, comes into play again. Well, John, John was very familiar with, with Jack's grandfather, Honey Fitz, and with Joe Kennedy, uh, even though Joe Kennedy had left the city to make his fortune in New York. And, uh, uh, and at, at one point, uh, 1940, when after when we're not sure that FDR was going to run for re, uh, for the third time for re-election, uh, McCormick is uh, touting Joe Kennedy for president, and uh, and then he finds out that FDR wants that third term, and McCormick will you know uh, uh, sort of try to get the delegation to support Roosevelt instead of anyone else. So John, so so uh, he you know he has a great regard for Joe Kennedy. Well, uh, of course, Joe Kennedy and Roosevelt will have a mammoth uh, uh, split uh, in following the 1940 election after Joe gives an unfortunate set of interviews talking about democracy being dead in Europe and likely dead in America as well. And FDR shuts, shuts Joe Kennedy out. And I've got, I've got uh, FDR's appointment book, and you can see Joe Kennedy just disappears from the appointment book, and John McCormick replaces Joe Kennedy as, as FDR's favorite Boston Irishman. Well, in 1946, Jack Kennedy is elected to the uh, to the House of Representatives as a result of a, a vacancy. Jim Curley has been bought out of his Senate seat for reputed $100,000 from Joe Kennedy, which opens up the, uh, the Curley seat, and Jack will run. It's a Democratic seat, so once Jack wins the primary, which he does easily, he will be elected. Jack is only 29 at this point. He was no. He had left Boston when he was nine years old, you know, with his father when they moved to New York, and so he had really no real Boston connection apart from you know hanging around Harvard. Uh, so uh, so there's no real Boston presence of, of Jack Kennedy, and uh, now Jack will show up. He shows up late for the first caucus. Now John is concerned. The Democrats have lost control of the House in 1946. And John knows he will not be majority leader because they're no longer the majority. And uh, Rayburn uh, um, does not want to be a minority leader. Rayburn, Rayburn loved being speaker, did not enjoy working the floor. And so he tells his Southerners, vote for McCormick. And they said, no, we're not going to vote for McCormick. He's a Catholic. He's a Northern. We're not, we're not very happy with this. So Rayburn agrees to become minority leader. And well, the first thing Rayburn will do is name John McCormick as whip. Well, so now Kennedy is now in the House, 1947. The first substantive piece of legislation Kennedy votes for is the no third term amendment, the 22nd Amendment, which is generally it was a rebuke to FDR. You know, there's no president can serve for you know, more than you know, two elected terms. And Kennedy's 
first vote in the House, substantive vote, is for that amendment. He's one of only six Northern Democrats to vote for it. The bill is passed by the Southern Democrats and the Republicans. John McCormick is the floor manager on the other side to stop the amendment from being passed. So right from the get-go, Kennedy has basically antagonized McCormick. On top of basically showing up late for the caucus meeting. So now there's, so now we the John McCormick is unimpressed with this young Jack Kennedy, who he sees as a little, a little too self-assured, a little too self-satisfied. Well, then we have the infamous Jim Curley. Jim Curley is now in jail as a consequence of mail fraud. It's the second time Jim Curley's been in jail, but this time it's a federal offense. Federal offenses you have to serve damn you know, the, the full time. So McCormick is circulating a petition to get Jim Curley out of jail, to get a pardon. Uh, and I have a copy of the pardon at the Truman Library. Over 80 members of the House of Representatives signed, the pardon, signed this petition to get, get Curley's term shortened and allowed out of jail. Because Curley, is, in the meantime, has been reelected mayor of Boston. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the state legislature, in its infinite whatever it's, you know, wisdom, we might call it, is allowing Curley to continue to get his salary as mayor of Boston, even though he's in jail. Massachusetts politics are uh, unique. Uh, so, uh, so, so, these, so uh, Jack will not sign the petition. He will not sign the petition. And McCormick is infuriated. Now, Jack won't sign a petition for a very simple reason. Jack's grandfather, the legendary Honey Fitz, was destroyed by Jim Curley. Jim Curley is the one who discovered that Fitzgerald was having a very heavy flirtation with Elizabeth Toodles Ryan, a cigarette girl and uh, uh, and a uh, woman of easy virtue, <laughs> the euphemism we can use here, uh, and that ended Fitzgerald's elective career. After the the Toodles episode was exposed in 1913, Fitzgerald never won another election. Went 0 for 7 in subsequent elections, which and which they attributed to Jim Curley discovering it and having it broadcast throughout the city. So, I, I love the way that he broadcast it too. He talked about how he would do this great lecture series, and he would play like you know the your famous your political affairs from Cleopatra to Toodles. Yeah, great, so, lo- great lovers of all time. That's what it was. <laughs> great lovers of all time from Cleopatra to Toodles. Well, the moment Curly, so Fitzgerald would announce he's going to run for office. Curly would say, "I'm called the Boston Globe. I'm going to give this wonderful lecture." And the moment. That they would appear in print if Fitzgerald would take ill and would not run. So that's how he kept, you know, Fitzgerald. Now he you know, put a lid on Fitzgerald's career. So the Kennedys are well aware of Jim Curley's, you know, you know, malfeasance in this area. So there's no love loss for, for, for Jim Curley. And, and so Jack is the only Democrat of the delegation who won't sign the petition. And of course, this you know, this is this is uh, you know, uh, once again, this is Shanty Irish versus the Lace Curtain Irish. Uh, so the, the class uh, item pops up. But also what I found was that Eunice, Eunice, who was working for the Justice Department, uh, had come to believe that uh, and there were, that Jim Curley was nowhere near as uh, near death as he kept contending in his correspondence <laughs> with Trump. And uh, so, so Eunice, the, the Justice Department, was not going to issue a pardon. But Harry Truman did issue a pardon. And a copy of which I got from Jim Curley's stepson, who took me to lunch at the Parker House in Boston. And he had a, I gave him a copy of the petition. He gave me a copy of the pardon. But Harry Truman, you know, signs the, uh, the pardon and says to McCormick, I did it for you, John. 
And so now Curly is out of jail. And what he does, he gets in a uh, convertible and he drives around the city triumphantly. And in the front seat of the convertible is none other than Narco McCormick, <laughs> Sean's brother. So, and, so clearly there's some bad blood there. And then the tension gets exacerbated because you, you describe how Kennedy initially is you know, angling for uh, increasing his stature, increasing his uh, presence in the House. And when his efforts there fail, he pretty much blows off his service in the House and begins. Uh, he starts showing up to committee meetings. He stops showing up to vote on the floor. Uh, at one point, he makes a he goes to Harry Truman and he gets the uh, three other members of the uh, Democratic members of the delegation, junior members, to meet with Harry Truman to complain about McCormick's monopoly of patronage. This is 1949. They're getting ready for the 1950 census. A lot of people are going to be hired uh, to do a you know, you know, uh, account of the census. And Jack wants, you know, wants to be able to name some of these people. Well, John McCormick pretty much controls patronage in the state. And so Jack, you know, will get these three other junior members to go meet with Truman. Truman basically totally blows him off. And Jack doesn't quite understand why. Well, it turns out that Foster Furtillow, one of the junior members, has told McCormick what Kennedy is up to. And McCormick will meet with Harry Truman at breakfast that day and will tell Harry that Jack Kennedy's going to young John. I never call him Jack. Young John Kennedy will be here to, uh, uh, to sort of lobby you for, uh, for patronage in Massachusetts. Uh, ignore him. And that's what, what uh, Truman will do. And later that afternoon in the, uh, in the appointment calendar, it says that Truman went up to the Hill to, uh, uh, to uh, meet with uh, Sam Rayburn. And if you're meeting with Sam Rayburn, you're also meeting with John McCormick. Harry Truman was very close to both Sam and John. Sam uh, was a drinker, but but did not play poker. John loved to play poker, but didn't drink. Harry liked to play poker and drink. So in order to do both, he had to have both of them in the room. So he drink with Sam and play poker with John. So at that point, you describe how Kennedy shifts his focus to the Senate. He eventually gets elected to the Senate. And then, of course, in 1960, he becomes president. And at some point, uh, they, they they patched that up. What, what brought that about? Was that practical, or did uh, or did the Kennedy family make some sort of gesture to the McCormicks? Well, in 1956, uh, Jack. Uh, remember now, Jack. Jack's uh, was obsessed with Richard, <clears throat> with Richard Nixon, <clears throat> and he wanted to, and his, and his career parallel Nixon. Nixon was four years older, and Nixon and Kennedy were elected in the same year, 1946. They served on the same committee. Uh, the, uh, the sort of the education labor committee, uh, to, you know, together. And so Kennedy was obsessed with Nixon because Nixon had, you know, Nixon was not particularly good looking, wasn't rich, didn't go to good schools. Uh, with Jack, had, you know, was, was handsome, had money and gone to Harvard and all, and actually was at Stanford, London School of Economics. So Jack, you know, so Jack couldn't understand why Nixon was successful. But he studied Nixon, and Nixon got elected to the Senate in 1950, and because the seat was open, defeating Helen Hagan Douglas. So Jack had to wait until 1952 to run. So now Jack gets elected to the House the Senate in 1952. And, but Nixon, Nixon's already, and two years later, uh, in 1952, Nixon's elected vice president. 
And Kennedy's watching on television as Nixon and Eisenhower are holding their arms aloft and realizing that Richard Nixon is now vice president, second youngest vice president in American history. So how do I catch up with him again? So in 1956, Jack decides he's going to run for vice president. It's not a wise move. But uh, and but at one point, the, the Southerners will vote for Kennedy. The Southerners are mad at Estes Kefauver, the senator from Tennessee, because Kefauver did not sign the Southern Manifesto, which was his, uh, uh, a petition to sort of attack the Supreme Court for Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision regarding integration. So Kefauver is one of three senators who don't sign it, along with Al Gore, uh, senior of Tennessee, and Lyndon Johnson. So the Southerners rally behind Kennedy uh, in the 1956 uh, Democratic Convention. And Kennedy comes in like 37 votes of getting the nomination until John McCormick, uh, who has been feuding with the Kennedys over control of the state committee, which the Kennedys took away from him earlier that year. McCormick goes to the floor of the convention and yells out to Rayburn, who's presiding, Sam Sam, Missouri, Missouri. And Rayburn calls on Missouri. And Missouri switches its votes from Hubert Humphrey, one of the other candidates in the race, from Hubert Humphrey to Kefauver. This breaks the Kennedy momentum. And other delegations follow suit. And eventually Kefauver gets the nomination and Kennedy is, loses it. Now, Kennedys could be, now the Kennedys do a very strategic thing. Rather than attacking McCormick, which is what they felt like. They basically tried to diffuse the conflict, but because they now realize McCormick has much more power than they thought he did. They always underestimated McCormick's, you know, in, uh, inside power. So the, a, a, a truce gets a truce gets arranged, and the truce was settled on McCormick's nephew Eddie, Eddie Edward J. McCormick Jr., who was of course the son of Narco, is very ambitious. A very a very talented young man. He was uh, top of his class at BU Law School. He edited the Law Review. And Eddie McCormick wants to be Attorney General of Massachusetts. And so the Kennedys will work with the McCormicks to help Eddie. So this is the truth. So Eddie is in some ways is, is, I would say, is kind of a semi-pawn in this the, Eddie's career. So John knows that the Kennedys could, could, could kill Eddie's career, but they don't. But they don't. And so 1958, Jack runs for re-election, was second term in the Senate. Eddie gets elected uh, uh, attorney general. And none other, Foster Furcolo, the McCormick's protege, uh, who had been first elected governor in 1956, will get re-elected. So now McCormick, by 1958, is more powerful than Kennedy. Because his nephew's attorney general, his protege is governor, and he has just been re-elected. Uh, uh, to the House and re-elected re re as majority leader. So this sets up for 1960. What's going to happen at the convention? The key player here is, of course, Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn is, is the floor manager for Lyndon Johnson. McCormick has, gets named floor manager for Kennedy, which surprises everybody, given the, the history of animosity between Jack and John. And uh, and this in Boston papers, what's this all about? Well, the answer is, is very simple. Sam Rayburn only listens to one person from Massachusetts, and that's John McCormick. <laughs> and and 
uh, Joe Kennedy, Joe Kennedy knows that this is crucial in order to get Jack a victory. They're going to need Lyndon Johnson on the ticket and they want Lyndon Johnson on the ticket. As a matter of fact, Joe Kennedy wanted Lyndon Johnson to run for president in 1956 with Jack as vice president, which, which basically Lyndon Johnson basically told Joe Kennedy and Bobby to take a hike, which I've said Bobby. But nevertheless, they want Lyndon Johnson on that on that ticket. And they know that with Johnson on the ticket, that it's a winning ticket. And but the only person that Rayburn's going to listen to is McCormick. And so basically, and McCormick delivers. McCormick will deliver, will get to Rayburn. Rayburn will basically, you know, uh, tell Tip O'Neill, who's basically the intermediate. Tip O'Neill's the runner between the two, uh, the two camps. And, you know, basically have Jack call me. I'll call Lyndon. And we'll set this up, and that's what happened. So, so yeah, Tip O'Neill has this great connection where he succeeds John Kennedy in the United States House and begins his ascent to the speakership himself. But he also very quickly becomes one of McCormack's uh, greatest proteges. He he eventually becomes McCormack. Well, actually, not, not, he really uh, early on became McCormack's uh, after Furcolo had left. Furcolo had left to become uh, uh, state treasurer. And uh, Tip uh, Tip gets Jack's seat in 1952, and McCormick likes Tip. Tip's a poor boy, you know. His, his father was, you know, was a uh, was, <laughs> was a sewer worker in Cambridge. His mother had died young. Uh, there were, you know, there were all the sort of all of the the poor boy makes good uh, theme, which uh, resonates throughout McCormick's life. McCormick always had a soft spot for any, you know, kid. Ethnic who had you know uh, had a difficult upbringing, he identified with them and tried to advance their careers as much as possible. This is why he had such a difficult time figuring out Kennedy, uh, who was sort of clearly born uh, with a silver spoon, and uh, so that's another reason why. Once again, there's a there's a class element that I think is overlooked in the ethnic uh, interpretations of these uh, battles. So. McCormick becomes speaker when Rayburn dies in 1961, and then you have John Kennedy's assassination uh, less than two years later. And this brings to the presidency Lyndon Johnson, who, unlike John Kennedy, has a very ambitious legislative agenda that he's willing to put enormous political capital behind. So McCormack serves as speaker during the period of the Great Society of Legislation. And I was wondering if you could describe, you know, you know, what that was like. McCormick uh, was always deferential to presidents, with, well, with a slight exception of Eisenhower, but he's very deferential to Democratic presidents, uh, very deferential to Roosevelt, very deferential to Harry Truman, and was very and was semi-deferential to Jack Kennedy, except in the area of, of parochial money for parochial schools, which Jack opposed and which McCormick supported. And that conflict led to uh, the collapse of Kennedy's education bill in 1961, a very uh, which antagonized the you know the Kennedy loyalists and, and many of the House liberals. But Lyndon Johnson was another story. Uh, McCormick uh, got to know Lyndon Johnson early in the late in the 1930s when Johnson was was elected to the House of Representatives. Uh, Johnson was a master at ingratiating himself with old timers, and he did this in Texas. Uh, with Alvin Wirtz, he did this in the House with Rayburn, and did it with McCormick, and did it in the Senate with Dick Russell. 
So Lyndon Johnson always knew how to suck up to older men who in power in power positions, men interesting of none of whom had sons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Johnson Johnson became a professional son surrogate to all of these people, to Wirtz and Rayburn, McCormick and and Dick Russell, uh, and, and and it worked. And uh, they would invite them to the, you know, his home and they would have, you know, have, have a brunch with Lady Bird and hang out, you know, with Linda and, and Lucy. And so Johnson played that the hill, and they became very loyal to, to Johnson. Now, when, when Johnson becomes president, now remember this is the most famous photograph. <laughs> this is what uh, the leads to the passage of the uh, the 25th Amendment. Lyndon Johnson has taken over as president on, on the 27th of November 1963. Lyndon Johnson goes before the the. Uh, a joint session of Congress, you know, the Let Us Continue speech, and seated behind Johnson, on one side is John McCormick, who's about to turn, uh, what, 82, uh, it should be uh, 72, and on the other side is Carl, uh, Carl Hayden from Arizona, who is 86. And these guys are the next, and under the Succession Act of 1947, these two guys are the next in line to Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson has a history of heart trouble, he kept him out in 1956. Uh, a presidential contest, and so America holds its breath looking at this photograph of LBJ in front of these two very old guys who are next in line to succeed him, and that will lead to the passage of the 25th Amendment. That one photograph will lead to the passage of the 25th Amendment, the sort of presidential succession and disability amendment. So, uh, so McCormick is very deferential to LBJ, whom he sees as sort of a master legislator, which is true. And he uh, and he and his leadership team, Carl Albert of Oklahoma, who's floor leader, and Hale Boggs of Louisiana, who's whip, none of them had ever served as committee chairs. And so they really have they've been facilitators of legislation rather than authors of legislation. And that makes a big difference. And Johnson, who was loved to write legislation had a great legislative writing team, uh, was able to sort of uh, take command. And uh, and the uh, the at the 1965, the John McCormick delivered to Johnson a 94 percent success rating of legislation on the floor, which was enormous, the highest ever. So uh, at that point, well, Obama lucked out for other reasons back in in 2009. But this after that point. The 94% was the highest success rate for a president with the House of Representatives. So, a, uh, so but John was very deferential to, to Johnson and pretty much let Johnson uh, have whatever he wanted with the House of Representatives, did not exercise any kind of uh, uh, legislative restraint on Johnson. And I think, and Johnson was very appreciative of that. And the letters, the correspondence between McCormick and Johnson, it just, uh, you know, I wouldn't, Almost a bromance, uh, to put in contemporary terms, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and they clearly were very much uh, in sync. And of course, this led Johnson, uh, this led Johnson basically, you know, to escalate the war in Vietnam, and for McCormick basically to to mobilize as many Democrats as he possibly could behind the war. And this contributed, I was in no small part, to McCormick's not being regarded as a as a, a successful speaker because he. Uh, he became a cheerleader for Johnson uh, rather than a, uh, a, counter, a counterweight. Another factor that uh, comes across in your book is how there's also this 
uh, ideological change that's taking place. It's being driven in part by broader events like the civil rights movement in the 1950s. It's also being uh, it's also being brought about by a generational change. After World War II, you have a younger generation, uh, men, uh, many of whom served in, in combat, who didn't have uh, quite the same degree of, of, of deference. And when you get to the 1960s, you have, uh, uh, in, in, in one uh, camp, you have you know, Dick Bowling and his challenge. And then you also have, uh, coming out of the 1950s, the uh, formation of the Democratic Study Group. Could you speak to the challenges that, that uh, both Bowling and the DSG posed to uh, McCormack? Yeah, Dick, uh, Dick Bowling was from, from Missouri, from Kansas City, was very close to Harry Truman, <clears throat> who was one of his constituents. And Dick Bowling, an incredibly smart guy, uh, <laughs> not quite as smart as Dick Bowling uh, believed. It's never wise to, to, to basically uh, consider yourself to be the smartest guy in the room because people will be around to sort of take it down. But in any case, Bowling was incredibly smart and, uh, and sadly very arrogant. And I interviewed him twice uh, in his office uh, when I was doing the committee's book. He, he, had, he had agreed to write the foreword to the book, but by the time the book came out, he had passed, and I wasn't able to get that from him. But when I started to talk about McCormick, uh, and McCormick had passed at this point, but Dick, Dick had wanted to be, Dick thought that it, when Rayburn died, that he would become the next speaker. Uh, he and Rayburn were very, very close. Uh, uh, he and Rayburn would go to dinner on a, on a uh, twice a week. Rayburn would regale Bowling with with uh, stories of his experience in the house, and Dick, who was a, a historian, would tell Rayburn of, of you know wonderful tales of speakers in a long past. And they got along. As a matter of fact, it was so close that uh, Rayburn fixed Bowling up with his second wife, who was. While Bowling was still sadly married to his first wife, <laughs> you know, these are the kind of things that John McCormick would know and not not to be pleased by. In any case, so Dick Bowling's second wife was a protege of Sam Rayburn, and uh, she was the uh, point person for uh, health, education, welfare on the failed uh, education bill in 1961. And Dick, as rules committee uh, member, was was unable to get the bill through the rules committee. And uh, and and was angry at McCormick because McCormick was not leaning on the Catholics in the in the uh, committee, most notably O'Neill and Madden uh, and Delaney uh, to sort of push the, the bill through. Well, Madden w went along with the president. O'Neill went back and forth and Delaney just dug his in his heels and he wasn't going to let it pass. And so defeated was defeated eight to seven. And so here's a, a personal embarrassment for Dick Bowling's wife who was uh, sort of the point person on the bill. And this added to the personal animosity between the two. And Bowling tried to prevent McCormick from succeeding Rayburn in 1961. He tried to rally the troops, but McCormick had the votes and Bowling kind of, you know, gave up on it. He made a, another half-hearted effort to become majority leader in 1962 against Kyle Albert. He gave that one up as well. So he was a, so he was a long simmering resentment about McCormick. And when I went to Bowling's files in uh, uh, Kansas City, University uh, Missouri, Kansas City, there were three huge legal-sized folders jam-packed, every nasty article about John McCormick, as well as about seven or eight editorial cartoons indicating McCormick as uh, feeble and out of touch. So he really despised McCormick. And when I, when uh, my second interview with Bowling. He asked me, why was it Tip O'Neill became, you know, whip in 19, 
71 and not Eddie Bolin, who was Tip's roommate and was a member of the Appropriations Committee, which is a lot bigger committee than Tip's Committee of Rules. And Eddie Bolin was living in Washington on a regular basis where Tip was going back and forth home to Cambridge. And so I said, well, you have to understand that Eddie Bolin put Ted Kennedy's name in the nomination at the 1962 Democratic Convention over Eddie McCormick, the Speaker's nephew. At this point, Bolin looked at me. He pounded his fist on the desk and said, the son of a bitch would never forgive him for that. <laughs> and at that point, I said, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Now Bolin got his explanation, and I got a sense of how, in, uh, how deep the animosity was between the two of them. And, of course, by the time you have uh, Bowling challenging uh, McCormick, unsuccessfully, but, but challenging nonetheless, and you have the, the growing dissent of liberals, it really seems that McCormick is, is in a political environment that, that really he's more uncomfortable with. And, of course, this culminates with Nixon's election in 1968, and, and, and uh, McCormick you know, seems to be you know, getting ready to retire, his his wife is is is, is getting ill, and then you had the the controversy involving uh, Marty Zweig, uh, and 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 it, it seems that he's he's ready to go by 1970. Oh, McCormick had, had outlived his usefulness in the House of Representatives. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, phrase uh, he stayed too long at the fair. Well, the House had moved on from the from the Austin Boston uh, uh, link of uh, that uh, that he and. Rayburn had forged. It would continue in different formats up through you know, the speakership of O'Neill and, and Carl Albert and Jim Wright. But uh, it was a, a, a but the the formation of the Democratic Study Group really was was driving McCormick crazy. The liberals were really because the liberals wanted two things: they wanted to wear the seniority system, and they wanted in the House, and they wanted to wear the filibuster in the Senate. Those are the two uh, procedural items that basically you know kept the conservative Southerners in power in Congress. And McCormick fought, the, fought those. Uh, and uh, now, so the, now at this point, McCormick has a chief of staff by the name of Marty Schwag, very bright guy, you know, got his PhD at Georgetown in history. And I, I did, you know, did spend some time with Marty. He took me, you know, took me on a, a tour of Washington when I first met him. He got me from one one ethnic restaurant to another, in which I was really uh, <laughs> plied with more alcohol than I used to imbibing. And uh, but Marty was Marty was Marty was was bored with his job. Marty had never married. Uh, he had taken over the job when John's longtime assistant, Jim Keneally, had had retired. And uh, Marty was very smart and was and really. As they say, was bored, and so he became got involved with influence peddling with an, uh, a, a, a corrupt attorney by the name of Belotion, Nathan Belotion from New York, and Belotion was a fixer. And you know, for X thousands of dollars, I'll you know put in a word for you with with so and so. But here's Belotion got this ally in the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives, and uh, and using the Speaker's office even calling the speaker's office, they were able to get, you know, a you know, number of transactions, which you know, were boarded on the illegal. And matter of fact, and Marty Schwein could imitate John McCormick's voice very effectively. So much so it became a kind of joke around Washington 
So you'd have John in your office, and then you call John's office and ask him for the speaker. And Marty would get on the phone, and he would and he would imitate John's voice while John was sitting in someone's office. Uh, and this became a kind of a joke. Well, I, I saw him do it. I, when, when I first that that initial meeting I had in 1968, I went to the office, and while I was standing there waiting to be, would eventually be ushered in to meet with McCormick. I saw Marty Schweig pick up the telephone and say, you know, Speaker McCormick. And the, the secretary, the receptionist at the desk and the, the secretary behind her, they both rolled their eyes and shrugged their shoulders, which to me indicated this was this is a fairly regular occurrence. Well, this was a regular occurrence. And Jack Anderson, the, at that point, who succeeded Drew Pearson as an investigative reporter, Jack Anderson had a uh, mole in the McCormick office and who reported that to McCormick, actually reported that to Anderson, rather, at the time. So what I was seeing with my own eyes was confirmed in Jack Anderson columns at the same time of Marty Schweig sort of misusing uh, his power in the McCormick office uh, to sort of uh, cut sweetheart deals for Nathan Belotion, the most notorious of which was they would call up the Bureau of Prisons and get uh, prison terms reduced uh, for, you know, various uh, uh, sundry uh, sort of uh, <laughs> characters who would run to follow the law. One of whom turned out to be Whitey Bulger. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, well, we're working on uh, two different projects and kind of outgrowths. One is uh, speakers and presidents, which is the kind of watching the, the Ryan Trump thing play out. Uh, basically, the speaker technically is the second most important uh, official in the, uh, you know, in the government behind the president. And uh, so it says uh, speakers and presidents are rivals or allies. And uh, sometimes speakers are allies. So where McCormick was. Other times they're rivals, as Tip O'Neill and, and Ronald Reagan were. So that's that's one project. And the other project is uh, an out, direct outgrowth of this, and this is the relationship between McCormick and Kennedy, a much shorter book than, than, than the giant one that you have in your hands, the diner pager that you have. Uh, and this is sort of you know, called Jack and John, the Prince and the Provincial. And once again, how this, this dynamic, this class and education dynamic, Really trumped the Irishness of the, of the two men's origins, and uh, and I think it's a, you know it's a fascinating uh, take, and frankly I think it'll probably sell a lot more than, than this book. <laughs> well, they both sound like excellent projects. Uh, Garrison Nelson, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Glad to do it. Thanks, Mark.